Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, which does not take corporate advertisers, and we really hope to keep it this way, we do need your help to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little bit a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and resources from each episode. If you did the same map right now, you'd see the exact same commodities flowing from the global south to the global north because countries were forced to and said, you will provide and produce this commodity because we want it. Not because actually it's needed by your people or it's it's something that you should be growing. It's because you will grow cotton, you will grow coffee, you will export oil, you will do this and these. And our economies globally have forced the global south to be commodity-driven export countries with powerful multinationals and those profits that come from the exploitation of, of countries in the global south flow to the global north. So, as I say, you know, imperialism is as, as alive today as it was then. Today, we're speaking with Assad Rahman, the executive director of the radical anti-poverty and social justice organization, War on Want. Assad is a leading climate justice activist whose work has helped to reframe the climate crisis as a crisis of neoliberal capitalism, inequality, and racism. Assad has led climate justice groups inside the UNFCCC process and was co-founder of the Global Campaign to Demand Climate Justice. He's also currently the coordinator of the Global Green New Deal Project and was one of the founders of the COP26 Coalition. Over the last 35 years, he's worked with many social movements, both globally and nationally, including the anti-racist movement, the alter-globalization movement, and the anti-war movement. My journey, like many children of immigrants and an immigrant myself, I was born in Pakistan. I came to the UK along with my parents, and I grew up in a working-class town in the north of of England. And like many people in the black community, both Asian and the African-Caribbean community, our experiences in the 70s and 80s, in fact, (laughs) a decade later, Mm. was of intense racial violence and indifference from the state or out-and-out violence from police. And, you know, going through the school system and basically facing sort of daily attacks on us in the schools, on our way to school, in our homes. Um, Our homes were used to be firebombed, graffitied with racist graffiti. Looking up as a child and seeing racist terrorizing our community, and particularly for, you know, first-generation migrants who the men would go out to work, you know, the women would be at home, didn't speak English as their first language and very sort of vulnerable and, and would be targeted. And and so from an early age, I suppose, that made me very both aware, of course, of uh, trying to understand what is it? What is this thing that why are we subject to sort of racist abuse and et cetera? And also to better understand, I suppose, my own story and the story of black people. So it got me in trying to respond to all of these racist slurs uh, about, you know, we we were living in mud huts, et cetera, and all of these things to, to actually learn a little bit more about the history of African civilizations, of Asian civilizations, of our struggles. And that really instilled in me, I suppose, uh, the core of my belief, which was around justice. And, and for many migrant families, the only way you could survive at that period was not the I, it was the we. And so a sense of community was also very, very powerful that as a community we stood together, we helped each other through difficult times. And and as a teenager, I then helped set up a movement called the Asian Youth Movement, which was an, a, a youth movement that had been set up in response to racist violence under a slogan, here to stay, here to fight, which was an, an expression that we were not going anywhere and we were going to fight for our rights and fight for the right to live free from attack. And and I suppose that would began my political journey. Mm. But it was a political journey that was not just about what was happening to 
us as a community, but that sort of political awareness and consciousness, like many people who I suppose uh, with that experience, started joining the dots for me. So, you know, I'd look at what was happening on the television screens in South Africa and apartheid or, you know, in Palestine and all around the world and ask myself, why is it that people who have got black or brown skin or their lives don't seem to have the same value? Why is it we are left without and yet there's incredible wealth in these rich countries? Is it because they were somehow better than us? And then you understand that actually the wealth of the global north, the UK, is because of its exploitation of both people and resources of the global south. So it began a very sort of political journey for me, but always rooted first in in community struggle and community resistance. Mm, I definitely want to go deeper into this. And I can see how personal and deeply rooted this advocacy and activism work has been for you. So I appreciate you offering this glimpse into your background. And I don't think we can understand the present day picture without digging up and revealing some historical context that helps us to better understand the foundations shaping our social fabric and how things function today. And with you, I'm particularly interested in exploring the legacy of imperialism, I'm aware that history is, of course, unique to every community and every region, but there are some key themes that we can highlight in terms of the power dynamics at play and the trajectory of the broad impacts of imperialism. So I wonder if you could lay the grounds here by sharing an overview of the creation of the unjust dynamic of the quote-unquote global north and the global south, which continues to systemically aggravate poverty for many communities due to, in part, the legacy of imperialism, at the global scale, sort of reconfiguring a lot of place-based relations and leaving a lot of countries now reliant on, for example, exporting commodities through resource extraction in order to even keep up with the pressures of economic globalization. So again, I recognize this is a sweeping stroke prompt, but I'd invite you to share whatever feels most pertinent that you want to weave in here. Yeah, to, I suppose the, the understanding of this moment Absolutely, we must understand the journey in which we get here. And and I would say that that, of course, predates even imperialism, right? You could go, we could go all the way back and say, what what are the foundations of this, mm. this toxology of both race and capital together? And you could go, it was the doctrine of discovery when, you know, the kings and queens of Europe and, and the Vatican Church, the Pope said that those with black or brown or indigenous had no value, that their land could be taken from them, that they could be sold as slaves, they could be exploited. And it was an attempt to justify, of course, everything from that moment, from slavery. And it it's such a profound moment because, of course, that's the story that the global north told itself, or particularly Europe told itself, that it was it was exploring new frontiers, that it was discovering what had never been lost, and but they were bringing civilization. And, of course, what we saw was that the global north was expropriating this incredible wealth and justifying it by, of course, using frames of racism. And you know, some would say what this is the development of racialized capitalism and it's what is the cornerstone of Western civilization. I mean, interestingly, at the very moment we have enlightenment in the global north in Europe, talking about human rights and civil liberties and, and the rights of man, you have enslavement of people. And this, the only way you could... I suppose people in Europe make sense of that was to say there are people who are less than human mm -hmm. and that becomes a profound uh, sort of reality and I think it's it's justified from that period on. So in the case of the UK, the Industrial Revolution would never have happened without slavery. It was the profits of slavery. It was the profits of, of slave products which built the universities, the you know, financed the inventions, the canals, the banks like Barclays Bank, the Bank of England. The immense profits were made, enriched enriched Britain, which had then allowed it to begin its colonial expansion all around the world. And, and that colonial expansion, again, was had one goal it wasn't just simply the acquiring of new territory it was acquiring of new territory and the exploitation of both the people and its resources to send wealth back to the north 
somebody did a study, for example, of, of just the Britain and Britain's role in the Indian subcontinent. You know, when the British went to India, it had a share of global GDP of about twenty four percent. When they left, it was about four percent. They'd taken forty five trillion pounds out of India. It said that Britain never financed a war from its own coffers, it was the profits from its colonial exploitation. And so this is a really profound, because what it does, it, it creates the, the world as we know it. And then that, as the anti-colonial struggles of the 40s, 50s and 60s begin to challenge and throw off these colonial yokes, we see this period, which is often called about, you know, the rise of imperialism or, or anti-imperialist movements, where you have very, very powerful movements of people in the global south who were not simply talking about the removal physically of colonial regimes, but of the power of, of multinationals, of European multinationals, and that was still controlling the economy. It's, you know, so no longer did you need guns and rifles and gunboats. You could control economies by the power of global capital, by trade rules, by limiting the ability of countries to determine their own destiny. And many leaders who had risen up and who, who challenged that imperialist logic, of course, were then either brutally overthrown, uh, coups, military dictators put in. So often when we think about the injustices of the past, they are not just some historical facts. You know, they are, their legacy continues today. And it continues today in the vulnerabilities that we see in the global south, in the wealth extraction of the global south. So often people will talk about, of course, you know, well, it was a hundreds of years, a hundred years ago when Britain was, or European powers were looting the countries of the global south. But, you know, fascinating, if you look at it even today, it says that $2 trillion annually flows in net flows from the global south to the global north. People like Walter Rodney, the, the revolutionary and, and writer, wrote a, a seminal book about how Europe underdeveloped Africa. And it was a deliberate strategy of, of not just underdevelopment, but of both maldevelopment, but fundamentally about controlling of resources. And we see that today with unsustainable debt repayments, illicit capital flows, corporations taking profit out of the global south and bringing it back to, of course, the banks and corporations in the global north. And so in reality, this this logic of, of racialized capitalism, colonialism, imperialism is still apparent today. And it's the same logic, the global south, its people and its resources have developed the global north and created this unjust and equal world. And baked into that system of, of inequity is this logic of sacrificing the global south in the interests of profit now that logic i think has been fuel as fueling you know sort of neoliberalism you know the dominant economic model that we've had since the 1970s it seems like as we take into this historic and global context it shows that arguably there has been no net increase in wealth as broadly as we want to define wealth, of course, but more so a shifting around of and a reconfiguration of wealth and quote-unquote resources on the planet. And something that I'm still struggling to comprehend is the uneven exchange, which generally speaks to how due to the differentials in currency and currency exchanges, for example, one hour of minimum wage labor in the UK or the United States could be worth 10 hours or even days of minimum wage labor in a quote-unquote developing country just due to how one currency converts unevenly into another. So in the big picture, what this means is that the fruits of labor and the products of resource extraction are disproportionately being sucked out of communities in the global south into the hands of multinational corporations and communities in the global north. And so as well-intentioned as a lot of more progressive companies are today, including ones that might label themselves as regenerative while being reliant on this uneven exchange to produce their products, to me, even if they pay living wages or above market prices in these regions for their resources and labor, it still can't really be considered regenerative because of the underlying dynamics that have been set up to make this a one-wayed, monodirectional relation that may seem like reciprocity, but only because the quote-unquote fair trade exists within an uneven context. I hope this makes sense, and I'm not sure if 
this is your specific focus per se, though I feel like this currency differential is somewhat integral to the perpetuation of global injustice. So I'd be curious to hear what else you would want to bring in here to help us better understand how this works, why these differentials exist, and why this dynamic of constant indebtedness persists in such a systemic way. Sure. So I think I think there are two things to be firstly said, which is there has been an attempt, and it's been largely led by international institutions such as the World Bank and the IMF, to create a, a narrative that over the last 30, 40 years, that somehow because of development or global de- globalization, we've seen a reduction in poverty and inequality in the global south. And this is the classic trickle down. Yes, there are unequal rates. Yes, there are all these. But in time, the countries of the global south will have the means to be able to develop and will become, you know, as economic powers in themselves. Look, that illusion is only possible if you accept the starting point being that people in the global south's level of poverty in relation to poverty in the global north is such that you measure it only in enough calories that they can survive a day. Mm. So in that, they can they point to poverty falling because the number of people surviving on one dollar on the equivalent of one dollar ninety is reducing. But actually, the real poverty rate is about five dollars fifty. That's that's not living. That's just having enough to be able to feed your family. You would need a poverty rate of about ten dollars a day, the equivalent of ten dollars a day. If you wanted somebody to not live in poverty, you need about $15 a day to be able to live with basic dignity. So this is not at the level of consumption of the global north. It's simply enough that you are able to feed your family, heat your home, your children would be able to go to school and you'd be able to afford at least some basic medical attention, etc. Now, three and a half billion people in this co- in the world are surviving on the equivalent of less than $5.50. And I say the equivalent because it's not $5.50 that they live on. The equivalent is is what is the purchasing power of $5.50 in the United States? So you tell me, what can $5.50 buy you in the United States? That's the purchasing power that is deemed to be of poverty in the global south. The the same 3.5 billion people are the ones without access to electricity or clean cooking. The same three and a half million people don't have access to public services. Now, this has never been a question that either there is not been enough wealth generated from any individual country, or that there is, you know, somehow not been the desire, the demand, or the ingenuity by the peoples of the global south wanting those. In fact, most of the struggles of the, both the seventies all the way through to the current time has been movements of people in the global south demanding that, both of their own governments and especially in terms of recognising that often their governments were unable to deliver this because the surplus profit that was being made from their, from whether it was through their resources through or through their exploitation of cheap labour, wasn't remaining in the country, was being siphoned off. And that's through, of course, the creation of very unfair trade rules, which were a hallmark of globalization or neoliberalism, as we would say, you know, forced privatizations in the global south, liberalizing the economy. When we talk about liberalizing the economy, we're not talking about liberalizing trade to make trade happen better between countries. It was to enable what were already very powerful institutions, such as corporations who had who had enriched themselves to continue to hold and be powerful actors in, in those economies and to, of course, then take the profits out. And this is not in illicit tax flows. So this is not just the fact that there that we've got now a global system where many corporations don't pay taxes in their in those individual countries. It's the fact that this is all legal. Mm. This is legally done. This is we we've created both a, a tax global tax system, a global trade system, and then a punitive system managed by institutions like the IMF and the World Bank and the WTO, the World Trade Organization, which punishes countries if they challenge that logic and if they, for example, decide to prioritize their own people. Now, often, you know, when we talk about 
unsustainable debt, for example, which, you know, since 1980, $4.5 trillion has been paid by the global south to private banks and governments in the global north. And you can see the reality of that as a continuum just by thinking about what's happening in Pakistan, for example. So in Pakistan, as we know, you know, 33 million people have been displaced by a climate flood that as, of course, they're not responsible for. They're responsible for less than 1% of global emissions. It's largely the emissions of the global north, still about eight, which were about 85% of all the carbon that's in the atmosphere. But Pakistan, for every $100 that the government raises in tax revenue, it pays 83 of those rupees back out in debt repayments. And what you see increasingly is country after country being trapped in this cycle of needing to beg for more debt-creating loans to pay the last debt-creating loans and each of those loans coming with conditions. So recently, Sri Lanka was unable to pay its debt. There had been huge protests on the streets of Sri Lanka by movements as people were unable to afford food, unable to afford even like kerosene to cook with, petrol for their you know motorbikes. People were unable to get to hospital. The government was telling people to eat less, not to eat three meals a day, and huge uprising of people. And the the government that was in power fled. The new government, which was imposed in Sri Lanka, went to the IMF and said, we want to negotiate restructuring our loan. Because, of course, once you, you, you default on your loan, you are effectively, the way our economic system is, is set up, you, are being, you will be punished because every bank, every corporation, they want their debt repayments and you will be. So people are forced to go back to the IMF. And the IMF told Sri Lanka, we will give you another loan if you do three things. You cut your public expenditure, so no, the very money that you need on public services. Mm. Second, you weaken your labour laws. We don't want such unions demanding or being strong in your country, so we need to weaken those. And thirdly, you have to privatise what's left of your utilities, So, which were operating for the interests of the Sri Lankan people they want them now to be put onto the open market. And of course, like much of our many countries in the global size, the main drivers of our economy are actually not in the hands of either our governments or our peoples. They are still controlled by the same Western multinationals. Now, if we had a picture, if we could show two maps, we could show a map of the colonial world and the influence of the different countries of Europe on the different parts of the world and the commodities that were drawn from those countries to feed back to supply chains, to feed consumption and the industrial processes in the global north. But if you did the same map right now, you'd see the exact same commodities flowing from the global south to the global north because countries were forced to and said, you will provide and produce this commodity because we want it. Not because actually it's needed by your people or it's it's something that you should be growing. It's because you will grow cotton, you will grow coffee, you will export oil, you will do this and these. And our economies globally have forced the global south to be commodity-driven export countries with powerful multinationals and those profits that come from the exploitation of, of countries in the global south flow to the global north. So, as I say, you know, imperialism is as as alive today as it was then, and this is the the cycle I think which the global south finds itself in. The people of the global south find themselves in, and those inequalities and injustices each and every year increase. The number of people being trapped in poverty increases, and we see. The reality of that, every time there is a manifestation of a crisis, because that vulnerability has now been built into the lives, the countries, our institutions of the global south. Yeah, so the historic processes really have solidified these sorts of vicious cycles of further and further disempowerment that continue into the present. And the extractive dynamics just never ended. They've just maybe taken on more 
euphemistic names and forms, but they very much are still alive with us. And I know you've personally been engaged with the ongoing climate conferences and Conference of the Parties, also known in abbreviated terms as things like COP21 in Paris, COP26, which happened in late 2021 in Glasgow, and so on. What have been some of your experiences and frustrations from this form of political engagement as you keep your focus on climate justice and reparations front and center? And also what comes to mind for you as you consider the idea of the medium as the message and how these conferences are typically set up, what form they take, where and what types of settings they usually take place, and whose voices they prop up or sideline or altogether leave out? Well, the climate negotiations are a, are a fascinating place to be in because I always say to people who first who come to these summits and and that the last thing that these summits are actually discussing is climate. What they're really discussing is political economy. It's who will be dominant in the political economy, whose interests will be protected, whose want, whose lives will be sacrificed, whose, whose want. And this really became absolutely apparent in 2009 when the very famous sort of or infamous Copenhagen climate talks took place. It was, if you remember, uh, President Obama had just been elected. He got a Nobel Peace Prize simply for coming to the climate summit after George Bush. And governments in the global north, you know, were applauding themselves as being the climate leaders. Many countries in the global south came to that summit saying the climate crisis is much worse than you think it is because it's already impacting us. This is not about something that will happen way off in the future to your children's children or your grandchildren's children. This is already impacting on the lives of our citizens in both extreme weather impacts, in how it's affecting our food production, in the displacement of people, in economic losses. And those of us who stood on the side of climate justice, and, you know, climate justice as a word is now, I would say, been co-opted quite a lot and stripped of quite a lot of its meaning. But the climate justice, you know, was developed as by movements in the global south as a way to understand the climate crisis, not simply as an abstract thing of extreme weather, or carbon, but an understanding that the climate crisis was a manifestation of of a systemic crisis that was playing out in a number of different ways. It was playing out in issues in inequality, it was playing out in issues in terms of food production, and it was being played out in terms of the climate crisis itself. And countries of the global south and movements of the global south called for temperatures to be limited to well below one degree. And countries of the global north led by the European Union, the United States, Canada, Australia, see a pattern, the colonial powers of the world, mm. argued very vociferously for a target of two degrees being a safe level. Now, actually, there was never a basis that two degrees was a safe level scientifically. It was purely an economic target. It was, it was created and decided as a target because of a study that was done that the impact on the global economy and on particularly on the GDP of rich countries would be continue to be negligible at two degrees and would be manageable. So, and now when you look around the world at this moment and you see 55 million people on the brink of starvation in the Horn of Africa, you see what's happening in Pakistan, you see the devastation in Puerto Rico, it, we just step back and remember this is the warming at just over one degree. And what they wanted is double this amount of warming. And to me, at that very at that moment, it became absolutely clear that what we were fighting here in this in this climate summit was not a question about simply about reducing carbon. It was about reducing injustices, and that the only way we were going to be able to do that was to be able to really understand both the unequitable consumption but also the unequitable responsibility of the global north and to drive both of those things forward in terms of both rich countries doing their fair share and cutting their emissions, but also recognising they have a both a legal and a moral responsibility to be able to 
help the countries of the global south who were being overwhelmed by the devastation that their actions and their companies had been caused. And what what I found really interesting at that moment was the mainstream environmental movement, all the what I would call the big brand NGOs, were all sided with the European Union and the United States at two degrees. Mm. And all the movements of colour and people were all saying, you're sacrificing us. What is this two degree? And I still remember the chair of the then G77 plus China, who was Ambassador Lumumba of South Sudan. And he sat there and in Copenhagen and tears were rolling down his eyes. And he said, you are shoveling my people, the people of Africa into genocide. And the money you're putting on the table is not even enough to pay for their coffins. I refuse to accept this and the mainstream you know sort of media and politicians and engineers were how dare he say that this is a deliberate attempt at genocide of people of the global south and i i think to me that was a very pertinent and insightfully understanding of actually what was taking place now you know, one of the problems of the clim- of climate change, of course, is it's a global problem. It's a problem of the global commons. No one country can solve it. So you do need a global agreement, and you do therefore need these kind of the COPs or the UN summit. The, the problem is not the summit itself. The problem fundamentally is the question of power, that you could have 195 countries of the global south all saying one thing, But if the five, six richest countries in the world, in the global north, refuse, then there is no no way that that can be passed. And one of the most powerful countries, of course, in the negotiations is the United States. And what the United States basically says, these are my red lines, those red lines are followed. They're not. It's not that the the majority of countries can overrule the United States. The United States says, I don't want to take liability for climate damages. The UNFCCC says, okay, there will be no liability for climate damages. They say, we, we're not going to cut our emissions equitably or fairly. We want a global goal that everybody does. The world says, okay, that's what we'll do. They say, we don't like these legally bound targets, scientifically determined. So, okay, we'll create a, a, a Paris Agreement, which is purely voluntary. You do what you can, however much you want to do. There's no, there's no legal mechanism that holds these rich countries responsible if they are breaching their fair share of, of effort. And their fair share of effort is that they would not just only need to be decarbonizing by 2030 to allow countries in the global south some time to be able to decarbonize without, because they obviously don't have the same amount of resources and technology, and that they need some space for development, that they need to be able to grow their economies. They, the rich countries are saying, that's that's not our responsibility. We we want to be treated exactly as you are. We will decarbonize in thirty years' time when we'll have temperatures probably heading towards close to three degrees warming. This is what the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty, Philip Alston, he said. This what we've created now is a system of climate apartheid where the rich will use their wealth to seek safety and they'll leave the poor to burn or drown. And that that's the same for me. That's the the thread that links where we are in this climate discussion way back to that doctrine of discovery. It's the same logic of saying there are parts of the world and there are people whose lives are not intrinsically of value and that we can negotiate and decide that they can be sacrificed. Mm. Something that concerns me is how much hope a lot of people put into these conferences alone, as I personally used to as well, as the sites where radical and just transformation will be envisioned and will be led. I mean, part of my concern has come from my personal belief in people power and community power and in bottom-up composting rather than top-down and imposed changes. I know activists like Dr. Camila Moreno and independent journalists like Whitney Webb have also pointed out 
their concerns with how these global climate agendas have been co-opted to serve the neoliberal values and goals of financializing and commodifying more parts of the planet and their elements and resources in the name of regulation and conservation. And there's a lot more that I'd love to dive deeper into with you later as well, like how the proposed climate solutions tend to focus on just the source of energy without an analysis of power and justice. But the thing I want to unpack with you here is the fact that these conferences focus on convening primarily the political leaders of nation-state institutions. And so the negotiations mostly take place between the representatives of nation-state governments, which on top of the climate reparations between nation-states, that is challenging enough. It also can't really properly take into account the injustices within most nation states in the world, from the global south to the global north, where any gains from commodity markets, even in the global south, tend to go into the hands of a few, often beyond their own borders, and where additional gains from quote-unquote development in the global north also continue to disproportionately benefit a few. And so with these acknowledgments, it does make me question how we can address these deeper layers of injustice and whether there's even room to do so at these global convenings that recognize and prop up nation-state institutions as the most valid form of governance and social organizing. And I agree. Look, you know, the, the question I think we, ha- we face as movements is, of course, we're trying to change two things at the same time. So we are battling at a local and national level to reimagine our state, so states, so our states, you know, serve the interests of its people rather than elites or global capital. And at the same time, there is a struggle between those states at a global level between the global south and the global north. Mm. So many activists find themselves in these spaces trying to, I suppose, stand with a broader perspective of that anti-colonial perspective about the global south and the global north, whilst back home being the very people who are being persecuted by their own state and in conflict with their own state because their state is, I think we were being honest with ourselves, we don't really have a country at this moment that we can stand proud and say, yes, here's here's a country which actually serves its movements. Although potentially... You know, Colombia may very well be that example because the power of social movements in Colombia uniting Afro-Colombian human rights, environmentalists, trade unionists, feminists have built a movement of movements and movement leaders have come up through that and have got a radical political agenda and have been elected. Now, there'll be a question, you know, of course, is, is are they able to fulfill the political agenda that their people want? But those examples are very rare and far between at this moment. Mm. So we, we do have a challenge that our own countries of the global south are are not the anti-imperialist leaders that they were in the 1970s. They're not the non-aligned movement. They don't come with that radical perspective. They now come saying that the one thing that is not possible to change is global capital or the neoliberal system. We have to work within this system. Mm. And working within that system simply means for them is finding the best deal possible. And often those best deals possible also still continue to mean that large parts of their own citizens are being sacrificed. And, you know, they have short-term objectives. They don't have these the long-term radical objectives. Now, I still think that the COP plays an important and an interesting role. Because in in purely in abstract terms, if we were sitting and we were designing a global space, we would say this meeting should take place every year. So it should be like, you know, not delayed in five years. It shouldn't be housed in a rich country in the global north, like the WTOAs, et cetera, or the IMF and the World Bank between Geneva and New York or Washington. It should move so it's held, hosted by global south countries as well. You would say every country should be there. Civil society should be there. So all of those things are there. It's not a perfect system, but it's but it's an interesting that the elements are there, the weakness it still is the same for me from my analysis is the weakness is our power. And that is an honest reflection of, and we should be honest, that as movements, we are not strong enough in our own countries 
and we're not strong enough collectively at a global level yet. And, you know, there are many reasons why that has happened, but it is just a material reality. And if we want to change the COP, we have to think first and foremost, how do we build power? Mm. How do we pull power around a vision and having demands? And then how do we use that power to get these international spaces, multilateral spaces, to deliver what we want to happen? Now, there has been a moment in our history where that came close to happening. You know, the anti-globalization movement, which in, in 1999 against the WTO, did have this global dimension, did have movements from Via Campesina to, you know, trade unions, environmentalists, who were challenging this logic of capital and were taken to the streets and really had the global institutions on the back foot. And there was a real opportunity and a possibility that actually, instead of the globalization agenda that we saw being about, that that could radically be altered and the spaces could be developed that countries in the global south could you know, determine a very, very different development pathway than the maldevelopment pathway that has been imposed on them. But we were not powerful enough, and I think we have to be honest that we've not been powerful enough in that in, in these moments. So thinking as somebody who both tries to build movements on the outside as well as take the demands of our movements inside those processes and thinking about how do we leverage what we have to shape narratives i would i would say that i see the unfccc as being a defensive strategy we're trying to stop them from doing more harm mm. not less not harm because they're already doing harm but it's more harm that if we weren't there that many of the things that they wanted to do would already be enacted the primacy of the market financialization of everything systems that would deepen and further impoverish the global side we were able to slow those things down whilst at the same time recognizing that that in, will never deliver the outcome until we have built the kind of movements that are themselves transformative because they would transform our nation state or our whatever political entity we wanted to build but they would and then that political identity would be accountable you know to its citizens rather than to all of these other economic interests yeah we certainly need people creating cracks and openings in every space so in a sort of all of the above kind of way and it has been beautiful and moving to see the growth of the movements fighting for reparations whether climate reparations or reparations for stolen land or stolen labor and rightfully so if people are genuinely interested in disrupting cycles of harm and healing extractive and exploitive relations and as we continue to support these movements i've also been thinking about how reparations ought to involve more than just economic returns, because ultimately, for me, those monetary currencies are representational of a huge diversity of currencies of life that have been commodified, reduced and extracted, and also complex relational community fabrics and social fabrics founded on trust that also have been torn apart and commercialized and turned transactional. Mm -hmm. And I named this not to place the onus of healing on communities who have been already been devastated by global colonial capitalism and corporate monopolization or those who wish to stand in solidarity with these communities, but actually and hopefully as a way of recognizing our abilities to reclaim power and rebuild community from the bottom up in all of these ways that cannot be replaced nor simply bought by money, while, of course, we continue to fight relentlessly for economic reparations from nation-state governments and extractive corporations. As you've centered so much of your advocacy work on a radical Green New Deal that addresses global injustice, how have you contemplated what it might mean or take to heal communities with and beyond monetary reparations? Because I feel like so long as all types of relationships between people, communities with our more than human world and the uncommodifiable networks of trust and mutual aid continue to be forcibly eroded by the broader system, I fear that this one form of reparations will not suffice nor be enough to catch up to the ongoing and forced unraveling of place-based communities and ecosystems. No, and I think you're absolutely right. It won't be. I mean, it's a legitimate demand to be made because we know that 
in a very, very practical, just on a very practical level, that when harm is done to our communities, their vulnerability is, you know, between 11 to 14 times more than citizens of the global north because they've been deprived of very basic essentials that the state could provide that would make a material difference in their lives. And so resources through reparations are are important because the reality of climate violence is it's here mm-hmm. and it's immense and it's overwhelming communities and they need every measure of support that they can they can have and so that's really really critical so absolutely that's a but that's not the whole story so there is of course in reparations it's as you said it's not simply about monetary the notion of reparations is also about not doing any more harm about repairing the harm that you're doing so it's it as asks a question of the global north and of corporations and the elites around the world that is not simply answered by what I would say the slogan polluter pays, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think is very transactional. So as long as I pay, I can carry on polluting or I can do these damages. That it's that somehow you can, you know, quantify damage as if you can quantify the loss of community, people, identity, culture, uh, belonging. You just can't. And that's why when people try and calculate the cost of climate violence, you run into real problems because what are you trying to put a value to? Because many things are, you know, priceless. They they don't have a monetary value, but they're incredibly important. And so they have value in themselves. But I when we began working on on the idea of a of a radical global Green New Deal, which was a challenge, both of course to the frames of what the the, the vision that the global north had for its just transition, largely reproducing the same exploitation and extractivist logic, but now doing it in the name of being green. But it also challenged progressives in the global north whose response to the climate crisis had been to take on board some of the, I suppose, the political vision that movements in the global south and climate justice movements had long argued that understanding climate was understanding not just climate as an injustice in itself, but that it fueled all of the other existing inequalities and injustices, and that solving climate was not possible without also simultaneously, not as a add-on or as a nice thing, but simultaneously recognising that that meant tackling economic injustice, racism, patriarchy, etc. These were the systems that had created the climate crisis in the first place and so on doing those required now progressives have took on some of that language but they did an interesting thing they retreated to the nation state particularly in the global north and were talking about transitioning their own societies often with you know laudable aims like we want people to live with dignity living wages everybody should have a good job and right to housing and but they would not consider the the footprint of their own country on the rest of the global south mm. or the unequal exchange that happens between the global south and the global north so that the resources from the south are the ones that allow the global north to be able to even vision a different kind of economy and a just transition in the, in it for it for itself in the global north so that led many of us in, a, in with discussions with our movements to say what would be the pillars of our kind of vision of a radical global Green New Deal? And we said, absolutely, look, we know from what the science has told us, breaching the 1.5 and triggering the tipping points is absolutely catastrophic for our people in the global south. No temperature level is safe, absolutely not, and it's devastating and deadly for many, many people. But we know that at this point, things will spiral and get even worse. And, our, and, and the scale of our and severity of these impacts on our people mean having an equitable response to the climate crisis is important. So fair shares, each country doing what it needs to do in based on its responsibility. And that led us to a very different conversation because it no longer leads you to a conversation of 
energy should be fo- switching fossil fuels to renewable actually lends itself to a bigger conversation as, as what is the purpose of energy? What is productive energy? What is socially useful energy? How much energy should we have? How is it shared, equi- distributed? And what kind of, therefore, economy do you want to have? What kind of society do you want to have? It's a much more profound understanding of beginning the solutions. Similarly with food, you know, the unequal the control of our of our global food systems by industrial agribusiness means even though the majority of the world, something like close to eighty percent of, of people, are fed by small farms, they only they only occupy about ni- between nineteen and twenty three percent of all the land. The rest of agricultural land is given over to producing commodities. You know whether it's soy or etc. All for the supply chains of, of cons- was overwhelming consumption in the global north. But secondly, when you start to apply that and say, okay, but we've got a, we've also got an imperative to tackle global inequality, to allow people to be able to live in dignity, you begin to talk about the very demands that people had, our movements have been making for decades, you know, the rights to public services, health, education, housing, challenging the idea that these things were goods that were de- dependent on your ability to be able to pay rather than they were fundamental parts of being able to exist and therefore should be provided. And it, it begins, you have, begins you on a very, very different pathway when you start bringing those two things together. But the third thing, and this is, was really important from, particularly from both an indigenous perspective and, of course, from understanding our ecosystems are not abstract to who we are. We're not separate as human beings from the planet in which we live. The ecosystems support all the functions that we rely on food, our health, economy, housing. These are all reliant on these ecosystems. And, of course, we're, we, it's not just that we've got a climate crisis, we've got a crisis of reaching four or close to five now of our planetary limits it's it's the, the our planetary limits and that again challenges the i the very fundamental idea of the last 500 years which is development comes through the expansion of our economy and profit accumulation and then somehow that trickles down and you get the development of the kind of uh, a globalized economy and planetary limits puts a, a hard question on that and it re- begins to force people to think about our economy in a very very different way about sufficiency which of course are traditions that are deep in the global south ubuntu in in the continent of africa or living well or you know these are all concepts that now people in the global north talk a little bit about but were the fundamental foundations of a very very different vision of society and our economy and our and how we would as people connect with ourselves and with nature but the fourth element again largely ignored by in the global north was none of these were possible without recognizing that the world we've created was based on these unjust systems that had been baked into the political and economic system and that were until you uprooted those you would never be able to actually have or be able to realize any of these other demands now in an interesting thing level it's so you say well basically what you're saying you know end capital yeah and we're saying yes absolutely it's incompatible and uh, the mainstream climate scientists would say exactly the same thing saying you know climate change is a lot is the biggest failure of the free market and of free market capital it doesn't have the answers to it which is why for the last 40 years we've not seen a reduction in emissions we've actually seen an increase in emissions but it also begins to deliver things like the recent ipcc report which is the international panel on Cl- climate change which is the world's climate scientists in their report on on climate impacts, vulnerability, and adaptation, they actually begin to spell out. They say, not possible to tackle climate without having a compact on also tackling poverty and inequality. They talk about what does what vulnerability actually means, and they say the vulnerability is expressly linked with the fact that people are denied things like the right to housing, health, education, public services. And they say that the reason why these they denied that is because we have got systems, and they actually use the word colonialism. They say that the legacy of colonialism and the unjust systems that came out of colonialism are one of the main blocks in why 
you have this inequity between experiences in the global south and the global north to the same extreme weather patterns. And that is, I think, is in one sense, it's a little bit of a glimmer of hope that what has largely been narratives of the global south are now finding, finding spaces in the global north because people are no longer able to, like they have done for the last 100 years, is ignore the exploitative nature of capital because they had some benefit from it, even if it was crumbs, they were still getting something from it. They're now faced with a world where actually much of what's happening on the global south is also being happening in the global north and to very, very similar communities, the poorest community, black communities, working class people. And that creates the opportunity, I think, for a new vision of solidarity, of internationalism, of anti-imperialism, which has been sadly missing i think in these last two three decades it's been really weakened and so i would say we're in a moment where we can once again begin to dream and vision something different and probably neoliberalism's greatest victory on all people is the fact that it took away people's ability to imagine anything different it told everybody there was nothing before the market there is nothing after the market, the market is the only thing. And now people are, asked, are coming to the conclusion there is something after the market. There must be if we want to survive. What has been one of the most impactful texts or books that you've read or engaged with? As a young person, you know, obviously, like as a young person coming in with black politics, everybody reads Malcolm X's autobiography. But I found, as a working class person, that Hugh P. Newton's Revolutionary Suicide was just such a powerful book for me on, on the history of the Black Panthers and spoke to me in both my politics and my heart. More recently, I would say a book by Jason Hickel talking about less is more, which fundamentally starts to challenge the model of colonial and imperialist growth and takes a, an environmental and ecological, but also the lens of inequality and brings it to this moment. And it's a very useful and good book because it's got not just a, it just isn't about a critiquing the system, but it also begins to lay out a pathway on what could be different. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice that you engage with to stay grounded? Often when people, I think, work on climate and they look at the information that's in front of them. People say, oh, it's all a bit doom, isn't it? It's all about, and I, my motto is, you know, there is no moment of final defeat in this. We have to measure our work into the extent of the disasters we prevent, the scale of lives of our people in the global south. And for me, that's what every day I get up and go, that's, that's what we're doing. Mm. It's not that we're trying to, prevent this crisis we're trying to prevent this crisis from getting worse and worse and it can get much much worse Mm. and what is your biggest source of inspiration at the moment i mentioned colombia you know uh, the vice president uh, frankie marquez you know she was a a young woman who was a community activist uh, opposing extractivism in her community and in the 1980s she went to a political education school that my organization, together with a a movement in Colombia, was organizing. And I find when I I, I look at this person, to me, it's just immensely liberating to see a black woman in Colombia where 
This is a country ruled by the right, where the number of human rights defenders killed, the trade unions killed, is the highest anywhere in the world. And she has helped weave together a movement of movements that has been so successful that they're now in power. And it just, again, shows for me the, that we, we are all absolutely critical to this fight, but that our strength lies in building our collective power, having a political education and understanding, and having political courage. Mm. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Assad's work with War on Want, you can head to waronwant.org and we will have additional references to Assad's work and from this conversation linked in our show notes as well at greendreamer.com. Assad, thank you so much for your leadership and time with us here. It's been a huge honor for me to be able to speak with you. For now, though, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I would say a quote, not from one of our friends, but actually from one of our enemies, the architect of neoliberalism, Milton Friedman, who said, only a crisis, real or perceived, produces real change. Our goal is to keep our ideas and policies alive for when the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. And our, we and our vision is the politically inevitable. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. And to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support. So if you value independent media and counterculture conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Tear Down the Wall by Forest Vale. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>